This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. We're, I just hit record, so we're recording now because I want to hear this. So, you, Mace, you were up in the very northern part. I want the listener to hear this. You were in the north, most northern point in the U.S. Yeah, Barrow, Alaska, although we call it Utkiagvik now. Or I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but uh, it's a, you know, it's a Native American community, um, Alaska. This was two, two years ago. Two years ago in the summer, it's an amazing place because you can uh, see wildlife up there that you can't see most other places. And uh, it's pretty remote. It's hard to get and to. And it, it's translated as this is where we go to, sh- to hunt snowy owls. Yeah, that's the translation. It's, uh, you know, the people up there, they survive on uh, hunting and whatever they can, whatever they can uh, gather throughout the year. So they hunt whales and seals and caribou and birds. Back in the day when they hunted owls, how did they do that? I don't know how they actually hunted owls. Um, it's a good question. I don't An know. Owl doesn't seem like it'd be very yummy. Just looking at it, you know. It's not. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah, they might have used it also for ceremonial purposes. You know, use the the feathers, but. You know, it's also it's it's there year round too. So um, a lot of other things aren't. Yeah, you know, there's not a very strong correlation between how delicious something looks and how delicious it is, though. Like, <laughs> we just got back from the Bahamas, and we were my wife and I, and we were spearing spiny lobster, and you know, they look like they look like aliens. Yep, <laughs> tastes good. Yeah, I wonder who the first person was to be like, "Oh, I'm going to eat that." You know, <laughs> it seems like a stretch. So <laughs> year, years ago, Matt, when I was down in the Turks and Caicos Islands, not too far from where you were, probably. No, not at all. Uh, my buddy, I'm, I'm, I want to tell you exactly where I was because my wife and I are thinking about buying a place there, and the one of the, the main reason we don't want to is that our main reluctance is that it's just going to it's going to get discovered yeah oh, i'll just tell you nobody listens to this freaking podcast anyway we were on long island oh new york <laughs> yeah right right so Nobody's yeah go, go ahead robert i want to hear about yeah I'm yeah doing. so so uh my wife and i were down in the uh turks and caicos islands and my buddy who was hosting us down there talked me into eating raw conch Raw. Well, we eat a lot of conch salad. You know, the raw conch. You just you just get it right out of the shell and you eat it. And oh, that is so to, chewy. It, it's like it was like chewing on a car tire. Yeah. And I I had the same question. Who who first said let's get this animal out of its shell and take a bite? Yeah. It actually was kind of tasty, but you could taste it for a long time because it took forever to chew it up. Wow, but you've had it other ways, probably too, right? Oh, conch, conch fritters, conch spaghetti, conch lasagna. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I'm I, sorry. Once you once you figure out how to get them out of the shell, that is a trick. 
something about the third world yep, and the third set of whatever yeah. those little spikes are. Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, that's, all I know is is just a beautiful ecosystem down there. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I I absolutely love it. We were there for three weeks because it was my wife's 50th birthday and she was there a month. She took the, she, we did it. We were down there last year. She took a dive class, a free dive class. And she reluctantly went to this dive class. Like I, it wasn't like I brought her kicking and screaming, but she was pretty eye rolling about it, but she loved it so much that she went and did it again this year without me. And, uh, <laughs> so, her bunch of her friends came down and I, I've got, I'm like a gustatorial kind of a, is that a word? Like, you know, like food, gut mm. or stomach, right? Gust. Yeah. <laughs> so I, when I go someplace, I want to eat all the stuff you can eat there. And there was about 12 of us. So the first, they picked me up from the airport, her friends, we go to this bar and within 10 minutes, I got a guy lined up to bring us a goat the next day uh because there's feral goats running all over that island so he shot it and processed it for us and then i found a guy that really he was gonna bring us a pig but we started catching so many fish we never we back backed out on that that just it's just unbelievable how many the the like the amount of fish you know yeah and conch yeah we and, we actually Lobster till we were tired of them when we were done. Oh yeah, I those big yeah, spiny lobsters. Cool. The tail on the tail on some of them, as long as your forearm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those ones aren't quite as good, in my opinion, I, as the smaller I, ones. We we ate it till we were tired of it. It was good. <laughs> one day I yeah. once one day I speared this grouper. That was probably twenty five pounds, and we. We were staying at a place where we got to be good friends with the neighbors, and they're, they've lived there their whole lives. And I'm getting ready to fillet this grouper, and the guy comes over, and he's got this long – I've never seen a knife like this. It's sharp on both edges. He says, let me help you with this. He said, you want to make soup. So he starts skinning it, and he skins all around the head, all around the tail, everywhere except the top of the fillet. He says, "Okay, now we'll now go ahead and fillet it." And I flayed it, and then I skinned it, uh, the fillets. But and then he took a machete, started chunking that thing up into like the whole body cavity, the head. Took out the gills, obviously, and other like unappetizing parts of the head. But chunked it up into they're probably like most chunks were three by three inches or something like that. And then I made and there was way more meat. Way more meat in that meat, like he put it all in the bowl, than there was on the flakes. And we um, made a and we made a soup out of that, and we ate that soup for five days for lunch. A bunch of us, you know, and it was so good. I'm, you know, how ocean fish have way bigger bones. Yeah. Then, so I, I mean, you couldn't, you wouldn't want to try to do that with northern pike. Mm. Sounds good. You know, you just, you would be, you'd have a mouthful of bones, but with those great big, it's like kind of even like chicken, you know, Mm. everybody says 
taste like chicken. This doesn't taste like chicken, but it's a big bone. Like you're just eating chick, like eating meat off of a chicken bone. <laughs> so, so Matt, another thing he taught me. Oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna say you might want to finish it, and then we'll get started. But I need to, I need to be full disclosure with you before we start. But go right ahead. Oh, another thing he told me was that you can eat the barracuda around there. You know how they're kind of a no-no? Yeah. You do? You guys know about that? I have no idea. You're teaching me something here, buddy. Barracuda, you know what they look like, right? Yeah. yeah. They're like the, no the northern pike of the ocean. But they're they can carry cigateratoxin, as can many other species of fish, but they're the they're bad with it. Mm. So they bioaccumulate a toxin that's made by some little microorganism, an algae or a oh. plankton or something, and it's a nerve toxin, and it may it makes it con that toxin convert confuses your nervous system to the point where hot things feel cold and cold things feel hot. And, but it'll make you really, really sick. I mean, people have died from it. Sure. And so I've never eaten it down there. We've gone there a number of times, but, uh, and there's other places where it, they don't have it either. Like the Gulf of Mexico. I just found out last year. They don't, it doesn't happen there, but he said, as long as you're fishing, like, you know how the Bahamas are, at least Robert does, is mostly shallow water, but Long Island, you can go off the cliff into the deep blue a few miles offshore. He said, you know, if you catch one out there, do not eat it. But if you catch one shallow, it's good. And that's that's some of the best fish I've ever eaten. It's so good. It's like a mackerel? Uh, no... It's like a it's more like halibut, bad or like done. halibut with a little bit more complex flavor. Mm. And you you know you can fry it or grill it or whatever. But he and we did that. But one thing I did with it that I never did was you know like when you're a little kid, and your mommy minced up onions and put a, open a can of tuna and then put some mayo in it. So I did that with this, but you you steam it first, you know, and that was. Way better than tuna salad. Mm. Oh. Yeah, well, nice. Yeah, it was a it was a wonderful trip. But man, I got to stop play. Then I got back and was at work for three days, and then went turkey hunting for two days. I got to stop playboying and get back to work. Man, oh man, it's even harder now that I'm trying to save honey. You know, well, before, before we get started in this Q and A or whatever discussion, yeah, 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 I got some questions oh, for you. I, yeah. I, we, I, I, we're going to get down to the, to no, the agreed fine. upon just, top topic, but no, I, I just want to be very honest with you. Me and you have a mutual friend in common. Oh yeah, and his name's Robbie Kroger. Blow oh, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Just full disclosure, I had lunch with him in Memphis about a few weeks ago and just told him me and you would probably cross paths in the near future. And he said, just tell you hello. Okay. I'm going on their podcast again here real soon. 
Do you tell you and, that? Yeah. And Matt, there's one other thing you ought to know on the heading of full disclosure. Uh, Mr. Littlejohn here is newly appointed to the North American Wetlands Conservation Council. And oh. that's, a, that's a big dadgum deal. All right. Say that again. The What's it Sorry. called? The North American Wetlands Conservation Council. It is like it is the it is the seat of power for wetlands conservation in North America. Okay, tell so, me I'm wrong, Alex. <laughs> I I wouldn't argue with you. I wouldn't argue with you. Knowing what I know, it's now. where the money flows from. Is it funded by LWCF money? It is not. Migratory bird hunting stamps. Yep, primarily. Oh. Okay. Actually, okay. duck hunters and bird watcher dollars going to mostly duck hunter dollars going to work. Oh, yeah. Okay. The number of duck hunters is down, right? Well, I think it's trending like most things. Yeah. Well, one sec one second here. Hold on. Can you guys hear my brother in the other room talking? Nope. Okay. He's talking awfully talk loud. What's that? Tell him to talk louder. <laughs> this is my obscure brother, not my famous brother. It's okay. Uh, so, dang it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start offering my podcast guest a dollar for every time I say um and a dollar for every time I say so. Um, so. <laughs> I just listened to myself give an hour-long talk at the Pope and Young Banquet. And I, I hired a videographer to record it. And it's just so annoying. So <laughs> annoying. Man, when you listen to a good podcaster or somebody that really can get up there and forevermore shuck corn when they're giving a speech, they never say that shit. No. Okay. How many well, we would we'd have to we'd have to, we'd have to we could get into the idea that the number of hunters is going down. I don't know if you want to get into that, but I mean I wrote this article in 2021 that pointed out that all the hype about hunter numbers declining could very well be too due to a statistical artifact. A lot of articles came out that were not based on tag sales, but were based on the Fish and Wildlife Service's five-year survey. And, you know, in the survey, surveys always have your your sampling a population margin of error, and they and you derive a confidence interval. And that confidence interval for the 2021 estimate of the number of hunters widely overlapped. That that particular survey, the uncertainty estimate was way bigger than the several previous sur surveys. You have to dig around in the appendix to find all the stuff. And I mean, the confidence intervals overlap for the last several surveys. So there's, you know, I don't know. Like, there's just not much. There's not much sense in re in reporting the point estimates. It just the point estimates in my in my mind. It'll it'll be interesting to to see as Mace and Rob and I 
have talked about before what that average looks like post calculating in all the COVID years because you know we saw a response to COVID people ran outdoors maybe that was through hunting and fishing maybe it was through RV and maybe it was just through going to your local park and I think one of the unique things about TNC is that irregardless of the hunting numbers we've always strived to be habitat oriented with the, at the same time knowing that we've got to connect people in nature um in the same vein so it'll just be interesting to see what that looks like post yeah covid year corporations but i, I yeah. know it's margin of error and it may or may not be the case so. well and at the end of the day in my view it doesn't matter yeah it's not the right thing to try to optimize the right thing to optimize in is the amount of fulfillment that hunting brings society and when i look at all the data on the negative effects of intense hunting pressure let's just stick with ducks because we're talking about ducks on wildlife on the ducks it's not good peer-reviewed studies showing negative effects on nutrient acquisition body condition score and lipid concentrations ducks and then the if the number of hunters are declining so much then why why are more and more people leasing up land why why now can you only hunt for seven days in alberta a year for ducks if you're a u.s resident oh and then only if you draw only if you draw and up until last year, it was over the counter and you could stay in Alberta all duck season if you want. Really? Yeah. Yeah. The, huh. I mean, the, the, what, the dominant thing that's happening in hunting today is reduced opportunity. I'm focused on three problems. Reduced opportunity the, the, for, across the board whether it be turkey, elk, deer, antelope, ducks, everything's going so in just the in 2022 and 2023 alone, and it's been this way for the last couple of decades. It's always everything, it's always things going from over the counter to draw and reduced tags, reduced opportunity for non residents. Uh, reduced bag limits. And so I call that problem reduced opportunity one of the big three. The big three, in my view, are redu that, reduced, reduced opportunity, crowding, and lack of access, which is connected to crowding. And the reason I want to have you guys on is because I – the nonprofits are the hunting nonprofits, the Ducks Unlimited, the, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundations, the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, the North, North American Wild Turkey Federation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They I, either aren't doing their homework and they don't realize that those are the big three problems or they don't care. 
because the more, the logical solution, the logical step is to stop with the hunting promotion. But that's just, but but there's still, that is still a, a major part of their platform is trying to get more people to hunt and fish. Even though, like, here's a strong, here's a data point. Uh, the number of leased acres in Montana went from 7,000, 7 million in 2012 to 19 million in 2016. Now it's like, that's leased to outfitters. A third of the private land in Montana, as of 2016, is leased to outfitters up dramatically since 2012. And it's only gotten worse since then. Draw odds. It used to be you could hunt western states for elk, antelope, deer every two years. That was the case up until 2017. Now it's every four years. Uh, the, the number of studies by by recreation planners, wildlife biologists, and academics about the crowd, the number, the the effect of crowding on hunter satisfaction. I mean, it's always the relationship has always been negative. So, duh, of course that's the case. But four decades ago, there was about 25 of those articles published in, within the decade. In this most recent decade, there's been a hundred of those articles published. So, you know, the reason I want to talk to you guys, and I'll stop monopolizing here, is because I cannot understand. I'm a simple guy. I'm a, I'm a very simple person. And I look at... Uh, what are, the, what are the biggest problems? Crowding, inability to draw tags, and lack of access. Maybe you guys can convince me that there's some bigger problem than those three to the workaday average Joe Schmo that wants to go hunting and not spend 15 grand for a duck pit or to shoot an elk on some ranch somewhere. Those are the big problems. And the, and the nonprofits are like, you know what you got to need to do? We need to have, it's like the boat is sinking and the nonprofits are going like, I know what we'll do. We'll drill some more holes in it. <laughs> I, like, again, I'm a simple guy. I just don't see where making there be more hunters is you know, the solution. Matt, that, I, I could, I, I would respond to that from a couple of different angles. I, I've been with the conservancy now for about 18 years, but I was also before that I was at the wildlife management Institute, which is very much about hunters. It's all about hunters. And before that, I was with the State Wildlife Agency in Kansas. And those first two careers, I was with the agency for 20 years. Keep me mindful of this. And that is, is that we have this North American model of financing conservation, whereby, you know, hunters have paid the bills since the 1930s, since the Pittman-Robertson Act was, was passed. And there is a lot of, of fear, some of a rightful fear, among the people who run those agencies and who run the, the NGOs you're talking about, about that money drying up for lack of hunters. And, and what we have now is a relatively stable number of hunters declining as a percent of the population, but it's, it goes up and down, but it's, it runs around 10 million hunters. And, and, but those same hunters are paying more and more money all the time. 
And I know because I've been in the conversations that that the the women and men who run those state wildlife agencies are worried about that tap being shut off if there aren't enough hunters to not only to pay the tab proximally, but a little further out to vote for the laws that authorize those those tags and licenses. Well, and so I, yeah, but I would tell those people to take a beta blocker because the funding picture is better than it's ever been. It, because we have because of people, people in New York City buying Glocks, right? Like, yeah. I mean, how can you? Why are they so worried when the money has never been better? I'm just telling you, they see the decline in hunt. They're, but it's not just about money; it's about social and political and cultural standing. You know, hunters are declining as a percent of the of the population, and, and that means that when a law comes up. Uh, you know, that would limit hunting access. Um, there are few people to vote in favor, fewer people to vote in favor of it. And yeah, I, I hear that, but we're never going to get there. Okay. So the argument, and this is a good one for, uh, for your side of this is that it's not the number of hunters. It's if you have the more hunters you have, the more people you, there are that know a hunter and care about what the hunter values. Cause you're never going to get there. If it's just the hunters voting on one side and non-hunters voting on another, because that's right, only five percent of Americans you hunt. So in, in, if you made it be ten percent, it it's would be ten percent. It's not feasible to have it be ten yeah. percent. It's yeah. just it's absolute. I I'm not going to sit around for eight years waiting to draw a tag. I'm going to take up golf. You know, I'm not. <laughs> I'm probably not either. I'm probably yeah. gonna take up metal detecting. That's something that's already all a fish. I think could captivate me. But the but I don't, Robert. I, I'm I'm familiar with these arguments. They're the arguments I'm confronted with all the time. But I am not convinced that more hunters will will help us. I think it may be. It, I'm more worried that it would harm us. And I'm not just. Saying this we're never going to recruit. We're never going to recruit our way to enough hunters to make the North American model pay the bill for wildlife habitat management going forward. Which, in part, excuse me for being self-serving, is why we need organizations like the Nature Conservancy who are conserving habitat from other revenue sources. Yeah, that, yeah, that's and that's exactly why I want to have you on. And like in terms of our rights, with like I just got to say this, I just. The, the part about if it comes to a vote and all that. Okay. If we're voting, if the vote is about a conservation measure, then man, we got to have people that are not hunters be active in that. If it's a vote about whether to ban spring bear hunting in Washington state or not, or throw the politicians out of office that have made it be that you can't hunt bears in Washington anymore, then then you, you're relying on on hunters and people that are warm to hunting. But my fear is that the more hunters we have, the more people are putting dumb crap on the computer. And that has led to hunting bans. All this yeah. stuff in Australia right now, they're about to ban archery hunting there. That's from dumb people 
kids putting pictures of cats and stuff they shot on social media. There's two hunting bands in place in Canada, one for black bear in one portion of the country, one for grizzly bear in another part of the country, both directly attributable to social media. So my my thing there is any nonprofit that's telling me we need more hunters to protect our rights. I'm, I'm like, well, then also, if you're so concerned about our rights, you should also discourage your members from putting dead and dying wildlife on the computer. How, a, how I, I in totally the world, agree. how in the world could you say we need more? It's it's just incongruous to say we need more hunters to protect our rights, but ignore the thing that causes the hunting bans. I yeah. totally agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, I do too, so I like you guys, and I'm trying to learn more about you guys. I'm going to start shutting up big time. Man, am I going to start shutting up in a second. Hey, You're going to think me... I jumped off the call. But I'm trying to find nine profits that are doing good stuff for the hunter that aren't bought into this. We need more hunters BS. So that's why I, I had a, a person on from a, a scientist on from from Nature Conservancy, Collins Shanley. I, I mean, it's, I know it's a big outfit. Do you guys, any of you guys know him? No. So he's a he, he's in Juneau, and he studies mm-hmm. mainly studies black-tailed deer. He's doing some mm-hmm. cool stuff with figuring out how timber harvest affects their population dynamics, and like. So the Nature Conservancy is doing good stuff for game species. There's a, if you're listening to this podcast, everybody, anybody, there's a good reason to support the Nature Conservancy. But what I want to do with this episode is talk about what you portend for the sportsman in terms of that, in, in terms of access. I know you're doing stuff, good stuff for conservation and, and wildlife. What are you doing for access? If you have stuff to tell me about more than what Colin told me about conservation, I'm all ears for that too. But I wanted to learn a little bit about how things go for for access with with your group. Mace, you want to kick it off? Yeah, why don't I why don't I give a bit of an overview, Matt? Uh, and uh, you know, we're 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 the we're the largest conservation landowner nonprofit in the in the world but we're pretty quiet about what we do so i think a lot of people don't don't realize that that um we actually own and manage a lot of land and we're very focused on helping others conserve land so i I think access i would say there's three primary ways in which the nature conservancy helps hunter access Uh, the first is by the lands that we own and manage. So we own and manage about, uh, own outright 2.4 million acres in the United States. About half of that, about 1.2 million acres is open for hunting. A lot of people aren't aware of that because they sort of think the Nature Conservancy, we're all a bunch of tree huggers, but we're a, we're a pretty diverse group of folks that come to nature from a lot of different directions. And uh, we have a lot of hunters in our ranks. And providing 1.2 million acres of, of access to hunters is, is a significant amount of land. The other way we, uh, and we're happy to dig into any, any of these. The, the second way is we uh, have over the years, we've been around for 
close to 80 years now, almost 75 years, we have transferred a lot of lands that we purchase to federal and state agencies that then become public areas for uh, recreation. Most of that, you know, wilder places that allow hunting. So we've, much like Ducks Unlimited, we work with a lot. We've had a long career, a long history of acquiring properties and getting them into the hands of agencies that then uh, provide that access to hunters and anglers. Do you have acreage figures there? Yeah, I think it, it's uh, I think it's about five million acres over our history that we've transferred directly. So lands that we've purchased, held on to, and then transferred to to federal and state agencies. So um, in the United States, in our history, we've we've conserved through our ownership twenty three million acres uh, in our history. We uh, we currently hold only two point four. So. Uh, we transferred most of that land out over time, over time. Um, but 5 million acres we put in, into state and federal agencies. So I, where did I, the rest get transferred? Um, well, conservation partners. So, uh, sometimes private landowners, um, they don't all go to, to, to state uh, or federal agencies, but you know, we put, we, uh, we help conserve them and bring others to the to the table to 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 be be our partners in conserving them as well. So, um, long history there. And then the third way really is a policy. We do a lot of policy work, both lobbying at the state level and the federal level. And I'll let Alex and Rob really speak more to this. But you know, really landmark um, legislation like the Land and Water Conservation Fund that was refunded a couple of years ago through the Great American Outdoors Act. I mean, that's putting $900 million a year into the hands of basically federal agencies to provide um, lands for public access. So it's so in addition to a lot of other groups, you guys lobbied for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When we uh, will take a little credit, but you know, we have, we're operating in all 50 states and we have trustees, we have donors, we have um, relationships through our staff with uh, policymakers. We put all those engines to work when there's a big opportunity. And the Land and Water Conservation Fund renewal uh, through the Great American Outdoors Act was one of those opportunities. It was all hands on deck. So absolutely. I mean, it's a huge collective effort, but um, we have a lot of um, we have a lot of. Uh, uh, resources to bring to the table to help make things like that happen. And we're really, really proud of that. So those are primarily the three ways, the lands we own, the lands that we've transferred and the policy work that we do. Uh, you know, I think uh, the impacts have been millions and millions of acres. Uh, and I uh, add something, something to that, Mace. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in addition to lands that we've touched with a, some sort of legal interest, some sort of real estate holding, a lot of the work that we've done in the last decade has been about influencing how other land is managed. This doesn't help your access equation, Matt. I, as a as a hunter in in Kansas, which by the way has the least amount of public land, I think per capita of any state in the in the union. I understand the access. Less than Texas. Oh yeah. Oh, Nebraska's yeah, right up there too. Yeah, <laughs> right down there. So I get it. And I've been fortunate because my family ranches and farms in Kansas. So I have a place to go, but other people do not. I want to come back, though, to in addition to land that we've owned and opened to the public, 
1.2 million acres or so and land that we've owned for a period and then transferred so it could be open to the public, another 5 million acres. We spend a disproportionate amount of our resources now working on habitat on lands that we don't own. And that doesn't help with your access equation or your crowding equation. And I think it's all, uh, as a hunter, to me, it's a, it's about the quality of the experience. I don't want to be elbow to elbow with other hunters. I want to, I want it to be a spiritual experience with my kids. Yeah. But there also has to be habitat out there. And the Nature Conservancy doesn't tout itself as this at all, but we are the premier habitat organization there is. And that's that's what we do is is habitat. And so a lot of the land restoration types of restoration work and research, like 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 I was saying with Kyle and that I talked to Shanley, you know, like figuring out what the right habitat is. Yeah, and I shouldn't I shouldn't say we're the premier organization because there's lots of great organizations, DU and Pheasants that are partners with us that do good work. But we bring good science to the table. And because we're big, we bring a lot of money to the table to influence how land is managed. So people can make a living on agriculture and raise mule deer or whitetails or you know, sharpies or whatever. And and I think I think that gets downplayed a lot because we, for a long time, we were a land buying organization and we're a habitat organization. Now, and I, as a hunter, I value that a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that is absolutely necessary. Absolutely. But it's the easy, it's the easier of the two. And that's why every but every all the hunting industry is like, look, you know, we we are a con we do conservation work and they'll blurb how they gave 15 grand to some little thing they did. But they but they're 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 terrible. The hunting industry is terrible for access. They most of those companies just buy up land for themselves and they all try to subdivide land and sell it as hunting properties like mossy oak, real tree, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, but we need a, what, a, a land water conservation fund. We need a land water access fund too. Oh, I would, I would tell you when you're, when you're looking at a lot of these federal dollars, Matt, hunting ac- access is ranked into the criteria before some most if not all projects can receive that that funding so like lwcf we we utilize lwcf quite quite often down here through their forest legacy program and we've been able to match it uh, which is a critical component but we've been able to match it especially in south mississippi with a lot of our gulf environmental benefit fund dollars from the Deepwater horizon oil spill but it, deep inside of that forest legacy program, it's access. You know, oh. how is access going to be, you know, utilized? It's a component in the ranking criteria, but you also see it in, as Rob told you, um, North American Wetland Council, when they div- divvy out NALCA grants, you get a point, you get points towards projects that allow access. And I would tell you, it's quite hard to receive a NALCA without identifying that access and so forth. NACA, so, NACA be, what is that NACA? NACA is the, North, is the acronym for North American Wetland Council Act 
And so conservation, oh, okay. excuse me. And that's the council that I was appointed to recently. And, but and this, and what you were saying, what okay, the what was the forest forest? So inside of the land and water conservation fund is a number of project, number of programs, excuse me, that we utilize. We've we've tapped into the forest legacy program. Forest legacy, okay. Forest yeah. legacy is a is a large is a large program inside the land and water conservation fund, but but access is tied to the scoring and ranking of those of those dollars. So a private landowner comes and says, "I want some forest legacy money to." to do a thinning project on my hundred acres. And they're like, well, maybe. What are you gonna do for access as part of no, for, Forest Legacy is mostly a protection oriented um, program. So towards what you're describing there, it wouldn't be allowed, but they will purchase, Forest Legacy will purchase an easement on that private landowner and pay that private landowner if they are allowing access I see. Okay. for the public too. So that is a component of the Forest Legacy Program. But you, you'd be surprised, and Rob and Mace can hit on this too, you'd be surprised how many federal programs that are geared towards land protection, land conservation that don't um, quantify hunting, or excuse me, that don't quantify access public access in the ranking and scoring criteria before they issue the project and issue the project funds. Yeah. 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 BLM, Bureau of Land Management, whether they're the biggest land management, they have more acres under their control than any other entity in the country, private or government. They have a, they have a executive mandate to work on access. But it, yeah, but I have friends that work for BLM, and they're and, and they're like, they 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 are very convinced that they're that BLM is not living up to that mandate. Yeah, I can't speak to that. BLM's not a not a institution or agency we deal with east of Mississippi. So right, yeah, it's funny to me how much. That with BLM, and we don't need to dwell on it. But, and I, but I, I'm sure this is the case with lots and lots of different entities, be them private or government. That what ends up happening on the ground has a ton to do with the values of the people manning the office at the local level. So just because it comes down from on high, you need to work on access. There's been so many projects in my area in Eastern Montana where there's tons of BLM, where it was the the conservation easement didn't go through or the land swap didn't go through. They would open up a bunch of acres and it was because the person in charge was, wasn't energized to see it through. I think well, we, sorry, Alex, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Max. Well, I was gonna say when you look at the hunting access that the Nature Conservancy provides through the through the lands that we own and manage, you you that, that's reflected. The programs vary state by state. So uh and the val and the values or the purpose um uh, for those conservation lands. 
as I say, we own and manage right now about 2.4 million acres. Only half of those are open to hunting. So we don't allow hunting everywhere, but we do allow hunting on a lot of those lands. And usually it's because we need the help of hunters to manage the ecology of those places. In other words, places that have abundant deer uh, that are changing the vegetation, changing the habitat quality. Those are situations where we really want to bring hunters in because that's a great way to help people connect to to nature through their through their hunting heritage, but also solve a management problem for us. When there's a lot in uh, a guy I hang out with a lot and helps with this hunt quietly thing. He was he just moved to Colorado from Vermont, and he was telling me that there's a lot of nature conservancy land there that seems like it could be open for hunting, but it's not. So, what's the decision making process? We have an overarching policy as an organization that. Hunting has to be secondary to the conservation purposes of the of the land. So uh, we wouldn't, you know, we're we're trying to use hunting as a management tool that helps us maximize basically the biological diversity, the ecological health of that place. We also though allow hunting if if it's if it's important to the community, if it's important to community engagement and the and the local culture, and it's and it's neutral to the to the conservation condition um those that's those are the broad outlines of the organization how that gets interpreted on the ground really differs and some places we have uh, i know you won't like this but some places we actually lease out land because that's the easiest way to manage it we're not necessarily public access managers we're a bunch of ecologists and scientists trying to manage the land sometimes it's pretty efficient to have one entity manage the the access for for hunters other places we allow hunting for free. Uh, there's no permit necessary from the Nature Conservancy that costs you money, but maybe we ask for a relationship with you as a hunter. We want you to maybe volunteer a few hours on that place and start getting a relationship with the staff and the, and the land um, and everything in between. You know, uh, we don't allow, I would say deer hunting is probably pretty prevalent uh, across our places because those are. Uh, you know, that's where we have particular management needs to bring bring hunters to the to the table and help us. But, you know, it, it, it varies tremendously. Alex and, and Rob can both speak to specific examples in the states that they manage or, or Rob used to manage uh, where, you know, uh, how, how we how we allow that hunter access. But generally, we want it to be a quality experience. So to your to your to your issue about crowding. We want it to be a really high quality experience, and we're really seeking those those uh, situations where it's not a transaction. You know, it's not like, well, yeah, I'll go hunt out Nature Conservancy land, but I don't really care about them as an organization, or care what they're doing out there, or care about conservation more broadly on those lands. We really are seeking more of a, a longer term relationship, and a lot of our hunters actually hunt, come back and hunt our lands year after year after year because uh, that's what we're encouraging them to do. But also, it's a great place for them to to do to uh, do their hunting. Yeah, man. Yeah. Oh, if, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, as as a lifelong hunter, um, I'm I'm really proud of what the Nature Conservancy does in terms of providing access to people. And mostly, I think it is well above average. It's, it's, it's not the crowded experience of a public wildlife area sometimes, you know, on the opening day of dove season. Uh, it's, they're pretty quality experiences, as May said. I would just offer an example of where we don't allow hunting to kind of maybe cast a, a light on that. Um, 
in Kansas, we have a place called the, the Kanza Biological Research Preserve. It's, uh, we own it, but it's managed primarily by Kansas State University. It is the most published about prairie site. It's about 10,000, 10,000 acres on the planet. Yeah, I've worked on some of the data sets. Yeah, so you can't walk, that have been you can hardly there. walk any place on Kanza where you're not stepping on somebody's research project, you know? Right. That's a lower statement. So, <laughs> you know, clearly that's... Well, a lot of the places you're walking prior in three research projects. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's, you know, there's umpteen million dollars worth of research going on out there. It's just... And, and we talked about, because we got a white-tailed deer problem there. there. There's a browse line along Kings Creek there. We talked about allowing deer hunting, but... The risk reward for allowing hunters in there with all these research projects scattered all over the place, and you know, uh, it just just didn't work for us. So that's that's just an example of why we might not allow hunting in a place. Yeah. yeah. And Matt, I'll, kind of, go, I'll, go ahead. I'll, I'll I'll jump in and tell you that to your friend in Vermont, you might be surprised how much of that TNC land is open to hunting in Vermont. It's a yes, it is. a very tiny fraction of that land in Vermont's not allowed, not a, not accessible to public hunting, but the rest of it is. A large majority of that okay. property in Vermont is open. But we in in Mississippi, to Manus's uh, standpoint, and uh, and Mace's as well, there in Nebraska when he was state director. We do hunting leases on our properties. And so our properties are mitigation banks that we've held. So these are properties that we've held on to that are not, that we haven't transferred to a state or federal entity or a private buyer um, with a conservation easement on it. So the ones we've retained have monitoring requirements and certain uh, aspects that we've got to keep reporting on. And really we see our properties as a way to engage with the, the community to in where those properties are. So a hunting lease allows us to interact with that, with that group in that way. And so it also serves to our community-based conservation kind of approach that we do across TNC. But you know, we that's that's the value we see from the land holdings we have and the hunting access that we provide on it. Yeah, man, I I didn't know about this. I gosh, I wish you guys didn't do that. I, like I'm not gonna hammer on it, and I still support you, but oh, I wish there was another way. Have it be a raffle instead. Say that again. Have it be a raffle instead. Well, that you know, for us, it just seems that that deep connection, that that continuity that we have with these clubs, and look, they're nominal fees at the end of the day because they, they literally pay for the land taxes. I mean, that's essentially it. Mm -hmm. But the availability that we have, if it was open generally to the public, we'd have we'd have conflicts with our reporting on the mitigation banking side. So so much to what Manus is describing, it the risk reward, it's easier to have the lease because it allows us to at least allow some hunting on it at a level that is desirable without yeah. conflicting with the land use that we've got to and that we've got to adhere to because it's a mitigation bank. Yeah. And so that's the happy balance that we found. Yeah, I, I guess I would just I, I characterize the Nature Conservancy as an extremely hunter-friendly organization, but with a really, really complex mission. And and so where we can meet the the cultural and frankly, there's some economically important aspects of hunting in some some rural areas. It's important to the community. 
and where we can meet those needs, where we can connect people with nature in the most intimate way possible. Um, we we allow hunting. There are places where, like Kanza, where it, it just doesn't work. Uh, and and you know, I think the conservancy is we're not super consistent about it, but we're pretty doggone friendly towards hunters where we can be. I think, yeah. uh, Matt, I've heard you, I've heard some of your podcasts and you had a really interesting one with a rancher uh, in Montana, I believe. And I think, you know, in many, many respects, we have a lot of similar issues as a private landowner. In Nebraska, we have an incredible Niagara Valley Preserve at 60,000 acres. And we have three people that take care of that huge landscape. And we have buffalo out there. We have cattle. We have fences to fix. And, you know, we got a lot of work just keeping that place ecologically healthy to manage a hunter program. We do that on part of the land that is close to our headquarters where we can keep an eye on things. But remote areas of the property, there's no way we could do that without hiring extra people. And we, we don't want to charge hunters that much to be able to support extra people. So in that situation, a lease is a very efficient way to have some eyes on the land and have some management of the hunters that are out right. there that we don't have to uh, basically, um, you know, pay for. Uh, so there's a practicality to managing a lot of land, and sometimes a lease is a, is a solution to that. Another example I'd throw out, Matt, if, if I could, is uh, we've got the Nature Conservancy has a 20,000-acre property out in western Kansas, and we began to to fear that whitetails were pushing mule deer out as they will do in that part of the world. And so we wanted to establish a hunt for whitetails out there. And we worked with the, with the state wildlife agency, they managed the hunt and it started out, I think it started out as a hunt for veterans. And then it, it I think it morphed into a, to a, a youth hunt, you know, a, a mentor youth hunt. And then it grew beyond that. But, you know, we we didn't have the staff on the ground, as Mesa indicated, to manage the hunt. But so we just turned it over to the Department of Wildlife and Parks and they they manage the whole thing. And it's a quality hunt for the people who go there. They're not crowded. There's lots you of deer. Sign up and for a drawing. Yep. For, yep. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Both those states, Nebraska and Kansas, have programs that compensate landowners for for allowing public access. Uh, yeah, and I'm proud to say, Matt, that uh, I was part of launching that program in Kansas. Back well, in what's it called? Walk-in hunting areas. Yeah. I'm, we I'm, we have. We I'm gonna have. tell you that I'm gonna tell you that story in 60 seconds. Oh. My my wildlife division director, Joe Kramer, came in my office one day and he said, I want to try this land leasing thing like they do in South Dakota. And I called my boss, the secretary, who was later the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service, Steve Williams. And I said, I want to try this land leasing thing. And he said, no way, we're not leasing any land. A few weeks later, I threw that proposal on his desk and I said, this is what we're going to do. That year, we had 47,000 acres in a pilot. Five years later, we were at 1.3 million acres open for hunting access. Wow. So access. I have a nonprofit. I'm a co I'm a founder of a nonprofit called Hunters for Access. Until two, we've only been in existence three months. And in th it, three months ago, it was called Montana Hunters for Access, but now we've gone national. Do, if you guys, do you guys know about this at all, what we're doing? So the, the, 
you know, all these states have these programs that compensate landowners for allowing public access. So many states have little programs like that. And they're partly funded by an NRCS initiative called, what's it called? VIP. VIP. I have it written down somewhere. Oh, yeah. VIP HIP, Voluntary Public Access Habitat Incentive Program. So a lot of these programs get money, state programs get money from that federal program, but most of the funding in the programs, I think, comes from the sportsmen. So in Montana, we have 6 million acres in our our program. It's called Block Management. It's the biggest one in the country. And what we do is raise money for appreciation gifts and then give it out to ranchers and farmers that are enrolled in the program. Thing they, things they can use, gift certificates to farm and ranch stores, uh, calf shelters, new, pneumatic post pounders, you name it, anything, fence closers, that sort of thing. And I am recording a podcast tomorrow with a hunter in Kent there. His name is Jeff Hancock and the head of the program, the WEHA program. To, to, and, and Jeff has already established his own 501c3 and it has a board together. And so we're moving this to Kansas. We're elaborating our website. So you can go to our website and you pick a state and then you can donate money or you can sign up for a work. Oh, the other thing we do is work days. We go up. Oh, I said that. Um, it, so you can sign up for a work day. And you can set, or you can sign up, or just give a donation. So, and the idea is to support those programs and hopefully grow them, keep them. From Welcome shrinking. to Kansas. Yeah, keep, yeah, keep them. That's from Nebraska. Those programs are really viable. I, mean, I have one lined up with Nebraska. Yeah, good. As well, a podcast, and we're talking about moving it there too. I've got four four hunters have reached out to me about doing the similar thing in Nebraska. You know, and I think that the the bet the wager we're making is that a little bit of appreciation goes a long ways with these landowners. Yeah, I totally agree. They they could make way more money. I, I'd hate for them to hear this, but they could make way more money probably leasing it out, you know? But yeah. Then the, then the local guy from the gas station or or the hardware store, he doesn't have a place to go anymore. I know. And it's know all hunted from by people from some other state. So we're, we're just trying to provide yeah. some opportunity in places where there isn't much. There's still there, there are still a lot of private landowners, farmers and ranchers out there who who value the hunting tradition, who value its place in our culture and other cultures and who want, still want to see people hunt and, and they don't want to lease their land out. Mm. Well, some do, but there's still a lot of hunters out there who are a lot of ranchers and farmers out there who, who support the hunting tradition with access to their land. Um, and, and 
I'll qualify that though. I mean, I, to I totally agree, but grow, you know, living in Omaha, the largest community in Nebraska, my license plate is not that, you know, <laughs> going that out of the <laughs> rural part of Nebraska and asking for access doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the case here now more and more and more since I've lived, I've been in my, my, where the town where I live, which is a hunting Mecca for almost 20 years. And it's the story has never been one of, Oh, some places are opening up. It's more and more and more getting privatized. So I'm glad to hear you say that, Robert. You know, and every time I hear about somebody that telling me that they got on such and such a place just by knocking on the door, it warms my heart. And well, and well that's why that's every, why but everything is pushing against it. Everything in the hunting sphere is pushing against that hunting tv hunting social media pushes against that because it just creates a market yeah for well, the hardest thing the hardest thing to get in hunting to be if you're trying to get be successful is access to a good spot with abundant game and not a million dudes you know i think there's there's two really salient points there and you've touched on them both already one is I don't care how much access you have, you still have to have quality habitat and healthy wildlife populations. You have to have healthy ecosystems. That's what we do. And, and the other one is, you know, um, I still think most hunters want to have quality experiences and they want to, they want to have an experience where they privately exercise their own ethic as a hunter, their own land ethic as a hunter. And but there's a few out there that don't seem to grasp the issue of of the of the ethic of a hunter. And those are the ones you're talking about on social media that that sort of poison the pool for everybody else. Those are related but separate topics, you know, the, the habitat and the experience and the behavior of the hunter. Yeah. But even if you it's know, somebody Matt, that's even if it's the people that are most damaging. Okay, out you of know, all the people that show everybody their hunting life, I'd say the people that are most damaging are the ones that make it look most appealing. Like the, the ones that show tasteful stuff and do it in a professional way. Because that's that's effective marketing to large landowners that want to lease out their property or subdivide it and sell it as hunting ranchettes. You know, so I'm way less concerned about the guy that's drinking blood out of the deer's rib cage or whatever than I am <laughs> the, the person with 1.5 million followers is be, that's like, hey, be like me. Yeah. Did you want to jump in, Alex? No, I'm just going to share with Matt that, you know, to Rob's point on the quality experience, we you know, it's about four years ago, we had a chance to purchase about 20,000 acres in the lower Mississippi River Delta. And, um, it was largely held by a, a former Timo, um, Timo called Anderson Tully. And what's a Timo? Uh, timber Investment Management Group is what it is. It's, it's industrial timber landowners is what is what that is. You know, you got your warehousers, your your mulpus timber, your 
RMSs. Those are large timber landowners, industrial timber landowners. And we had this particular property um, really fit nicely into a, a very, um, a very rich area in biodiversity and a very rich area in the um, wildlife habitat offerings that it had. It was just a great forested property. And so we targeted it for that reason, but it also adjoined a, a wildlife management area and that offered draw hunts. And so to Rob's point, I have to commend the, the then Wildlife Commission um, for the Department of Wildlife, Fishery, and Parks. When we made that purchase with with them as a partner, um, they really put the onus on the on the quality side of things and uh, side of things, and they offered a di- very different hunting experience from a draw perspective. In that, when you draw on what is now called Phil Bryant WMA, that particular that particular twenty thousand acres, when you make a draw, you're you're not drawing for yourself that day. If you get drawn, you you get a draw for a group, and I'll say it's three to five hunters, and you get to have access and, and the rights to hunt, let's say 400 acres, a block of 400 acres right there on the property. And so that's the, that was the offering they made, and it was, it was due in part to um, the response from hunting surveys, as Rob was saying, that, that people desired a quality experience with quality habitat in a quality setting. And and no, that's hard sometimes to do on public land, but the commission, and I'm proud to have said we were a part of that as the, as the group that helped purchase the property, the commission said, you know, that'd be a great opportunity so that those families could come in, bring their own equipment and they're not rushed out in a day. They can come make camp, have those three to five days to themselves, that block uninterrupted, for them to make memories, for them to, you know, pass that hunting ethic along. And, and from the standpoint of the TN, you know, for nature conservancy, we, we protected a quality block of, um, you know, very quality habitat. And at the same time provided that quality hunting experience and access that really is not offered anywhere in the state like, like it is there. So I was just trying to back up um, some of what Rob was sharing with you. Oh, I, and I share that. That's great. If I owned a ton of property, I own seven acres and there's trespassing allowed signs around it. And, but if I had seven, if somebody wants, somebody that I don't know wants to go out on my seven acres and try to shoot one of the pheasants, the neighborhood pheasants that comes across, go ahead. It's fine. But if I owned 70,000 acres and it was a really coveted place to go, the signs, no, the signs would say the same thing, but underneath they'd say, but hunting is regulated or check at the guard check about hunting. And I would try to manage it so that it was a quality of experience for as many people as possible. I wouldn't have it be carte blanche. And, and the reason I wouldn't have it be carte blanche is just because I would be trying to maximize the joy that my land could bring to society. So I'm all about that. I'm all about that. But what well, I got to get, what I got to get to the bottom of in this podcast at some point is given that, let's say that, let's just take it at my, take my word that for some people, 
There are people out there, we don't know how many, that think that this trying to bring more hunters in is BS. That's what I think it is. And that there are people that want to, that are not on board with the hunting nonprofits, which are largely now the handmade in the hunting industry, or at least in their mind, that's the truth. And so they're like looking around for somebody else, some other outfit to support that 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 does conservation and access work. Given that some of your so given that you lease out some of the land, by and large, all everything considered, are you good? I mean, of course you're good good for access, but are you good on average for I mean for conservation? Are you good on average overall for access? The people I, that don't have the wherewithal to pay for it. I, I would just say this, Matt, and then I'll let Mace correct me because that's what Mace has always done. Um, Mace said, you know, we've got 2.4 million acres and only 1.2 million of it is open. I, I say that a different way. We've got 2.4 million acres and half the land we own is open to public access. Okay. Okay. So that the only lands that are in any way, at, uh, Nature Conservancy related that could be leased out are the 1.2 million. Not necessarily. There's some fluidity there. I'm, okay. I'm in Mesa's territory now. But. Yeah, thanks for the correcting me, Rob. <laughs> so we, we, hold, we own and feed 2.4 million acres. We have hunting access allowed on 1.2. So to Rob's point, that's a lot. Mace, Mace could you turn off your camera? Because you're buffering a little bit. That'll help with your audio. Okay, 1.2 million are open for hunting, but some of that's leased. Some of that's leased. I really don't know uh, what the percentage is. I think it's probably pretty low. And most of the 2.4 is open to the public for other forms of recreation. So um, we have 840 preserves that are open for the public to visit. In fact, we have 3 million people a year that come out and just enjoy nature uh, on our on our places. So that's a pretty big audience. So, I mean, clearly that gets in the way at times with hunting access. But of the 2.4 million acres that we own and manage, 1.2 million of those allow hunting. And the proportion that's leased I'm, I'm going to say it's probably pretty small. I know 11 states, their programs, they don't lease. They actually, again, allow access to hunters that contribute something, mostly volunteer time. So mm. you, can, you can earn a better position in terms of your reserve. You know, you can reserve uh, two or three weeks out a day of hunting if you've contributed 20 hours of volunteer service, let's say. If you haven't volunteered any, maybe you can reserve that day. Uh, and if you volunteer maybe 10 hours prior, you can get a you know reserve seven days in advance. So there's different systems, but basically the, the idea is not to have a pricey offering and earn, earn a lot of money from hunting access, but to manage it in a way that it's a quality experience, that it's not an a excessive burden on the folks on the ground who are stewarding that land, who have a lot of other things on their plate that they have to get to in a day. And uh, and still have that cultural and community connection that hunting 
uh, you know, hunting is a, is a you know way a lot of people connect with nature, and we want to we want to maintain that. We want to want to want to honor that tradition and work with those people. So it's really all over the map in terms of that access, but it's not a huge. It's not a. I would say it's 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 not leasing in the sense of we're leasing it for the top dollar. We're leasing it for really a way to have someone else manage that that population of hunters for us. And to Alex, okay, so you take the proceeds and hire people to manage the hunters. No, well, I, in the lease situation that Alex was describing, you know, it's a much easier situation to manage in terms of the hunters on that property throughout the year. If there's a group that has a lease and they manage it, you know, they they police that themselves. And I don't mean to put oh. words in Alex's mouth, but. That's easier than having a TNC staff member trying to figure out, okay, who's going to which 400 acres next Thursday? Uh, I see. Okay. Okay. So what about, does the the people that had it last year have the first rate of refusal this year? Yeah, that's that's generally the case. Um, And again, to my point earlier, we view it as a a deep relationship with members of that community that we're you know that the land is offered in. So that's generally how we do it. Yes. How let's say somebody gives up their chunk. How do you decide who's going to get it then? We offer it back out to the to the market to lease, and I can tell you from my experience, it doesn't stay there very long because um, unless we've had an unfavorable experience with a hunting club. Um, you know, generally what happens if, if that club breaks up, uh, another subsection of that club comes back together and rejoins with new members and tries to re- retain the lease on the property. Okay. Okay. And then my wife's ranch is in a conservation easement, a, a, a nature conservancy conservation easement. How does her, what's that? I say good for her. How does that work? I know that they can't subdivide it. Uh, subdivide it, they can't develop it. I was going to bring that up under the context of something else you said earlier, Matt, about uh, you know hunters locking up little pieces of land and you know for their own little private hunting places and conservation easements. One of the primary, well, the primary function of a conservation easement is to keep future owners of a property from doing things that are in conflict with its conservation values. And so plowing it up, breaking it up, subdividing it, building something on it, usually agriculture, grazing, grazing done right is commensurate with the conservation values, but the easement keeps that property intact and keeps the habitat intact. They got, they got a big tax write-off when they put went in to right. so then there's like a three-way thing. There's the landowner, there's the government, and then there's the nature conservancy. What was the nature conservancy's role? Well, um, she her family probably did the conservation easement through one of the USDA programs, probably the ASEP or Agricultural Conservation Easement Program. The Nature Conservancy is essentially the agent for that. Um, and we we are the primary easement holder in most of those relationships. I don't know what hers was like exactly, but basically the way it works is USDA funds the cost of that easement, which is usually somewhere around 
15, 20% of the fee title value of the land. And they either get paid that or they get a straight up tax credit, tax deduction for donating that easement. It sounds like that might be what your wife did. Well, how do you guys come in then? We hold the easement, which means... Why couldn't my wife hold the easement? You can't hold, you can't hold your own easement. The easement, the holding an easement means that you hold the rights to do anything on that land, develop that land in any way in conflict with its conservation values. And when the Nature Conservancy takes an easement or any other land trust does, they take those rights, that bundle of rights to tear up the habitat, and they essentially extinguish them. They also take on the liability of monitoring that piece of property in perpetuity as long as there are the laws of these United States to make sure that no one does anything to that habitat, to that piece of land that's in conflict with the conservation values or the conservation easement. Well, that's probably the most. Uh, I, thank you, Robert. I, I wonder about that all the time, and I just can never ask the question right. But now that, that, that helps me understand that a whole bunch. Somebody from the Nature Conservancy shows up on that property every year to make sure no one's violated the easement that was granted mm. by your wife's family. Okay. Okay. And it's backed up by USDA if indeed it is an ASAP easement. Does USDA have any stipulations in this case about public access in that kind of a situation? I Probably not. Um, most ASAP easements don't. Theoretically, it's possible to negotiate access into a conservation easement. It's probably been done somewhere. I'm, I'm not aware of one specifically, but it probably okay. has been. Okay. Huh. Yeah, and then like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, they're another land trust, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Pheasants Forever is a land trust, I believe. Ducks oh. Also. Oh, Docs Unlimited, too. Okay. I believe they are, yeah. Okay. And the federal government doesn't always have to be in the middle of things. I mean, we have a lot of easements that we right. do directly with with private parties. And in those cases, we just, you know, between it's a negotiation between us, the land trust and the owner of the remainder interest, what what activities are allowed on that property. We don't write easements that prohibit hunting, but it's up to that's one of those rights that in this case, your wife would retain and decide what to do with. So the easement doesn't speak to hunting access. Yeah, really. okay. That's not a, a stick in the bundle of property rights that you weigh in on. It's not uh, one word. Okay, in that kind, does the land does the landowner still get paid? The the landowner can get paid or they can donate the easement. Oh. And, and when the okay, when it's just the Nature Conservancy and the landowner, and the landowner does get paid, the money's coming from donations, right? From Nature Conservancy. Yeah, we there are easements that we do that are just as May said, a straight transaction between us and the landowner. And if it's a purchased easement, those comes from from revenues that that we generate. Yeah. That and in those cases, there is there is there an access requirement then? Uh, like May said, that remains at the discretion of the landowner. We have talked about some some recreational access components and conservation easements. I don't know, Mace or Alex, of any place we've actually exercised that, but we could if the landowner was willing and we'd have to compensate the landowner for it. Man, you know, it's just 
I guess there's two sides to it. If you got people running all over the place, then maybe it's not then that that's uh, not good for conservation. Like I've been saying that hunting pressure is rendering a lot of public lands inhospitable to wildlife in parts of the country and put you know public lands so there's that but also i think that if it could be construed if the if if the access was managed so it wasn't an undue burden on the wildlife on on these in these easements it could be construed that the access component is conservation related in that you're building a society that values wildlife by providing them a place to go and enjoy it. That That's a really good point, Matt. Um, the, the only thing that I would offer is that when a conservation easement is valued, in other words, what the landowner, what your wife's family was compensated for, it's valued based on what it was worth with all the bundle of rights intact to it. Uh-huh. And then whatever bundle of rights the easement removes. And the difference between those is the value of the easement. So if I say to you, if, or if they said to your wife, you can graze cattle on this, you can hunt on it, do anything you want. You just can't plow it up or build anything on it. That's one thing. If they said to your wife, you can't build anything on it, and you have to allow hunting on it, then that's taking another right away from from that landowner for which they'd have to be compensated. Uh-huh. And I, yeah, and I don't know which it would be with with her. I'll have to ask her about that. They allow hunting through the block management program. But yeah. I, I don't I don't think that was a stipulation. I'm sure I, I would be surprised if it was. Okay. I don't look at any of those. Okay. Wow, this is I'm learning a lot. This is uh this is great. I have a much I've always I've always been unclear about <laughs> that the <laughs> the conservation easement and you, the ownership of land with with nature conservancy. I didn't even know until two months ago that you hired biologists to do research. Sure, we've got hundreds of them. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting one. <laughs> you got about a thousand scientists on staff. Yeah, yeah, that's wild. That's wild. So, so Matt, we were talking before about expanding the number of hunters, and I, I, I think you make a really good point about the more hunters and the less access, the, the worse the, the experience. But let me, I have one example that kind of speaks to what we're trying to do with some of our access. And this is happening in a couple of states, but it's most developed in New York, which is working with a group called Hunters of Color. Oh, I think that 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 Lydia, I can't remember her last name, but the head of that outfit, I think might be coming on the podcast. Oh, yeah. I haven't met her, but I think she's uh, what I've read and, and learned from my colleagues. She's pretty amazing. That's an organization where you know, trying to where we have properties that we can help uh, hunters of color, um, black, indigenous and people of color who don't feel comfortable in a lot of rural parts of the country. You know, think about a 
black man walking around with a high-powered rifle and camo in the middle of Kansas or Nebraska, that's going to, you know, that's, that's, that's not a particularly safe situation for that person, but, uh, you know, helping them uh, have access, but also mentoring and bringing others along and building that experience and connection with nature, I believe about 98% of hunters are white. So, you know, diversifying the the hunter population in that way, if we can provide an avenue to help some people of color get comfortable and experience and have a quality experience and help bring others along and mentor others, I mean, ultimately that's got to be good for the for for hunting in general in terms of uh, you know making it a, a more uh, uh, an activity that a greater diversity of people can enjoy and also advocate for. In in uh, so are you allowing underrepresented groups additional opportunities that you're not allowing whites? Well, in this case, we had a prop a, a property that we had newly acquired. We knew we wanted to get some deer hunting on it, and. Yes, we don't open it up to general hunting. We reserve it for uh, hunting by the hunters of of color. I see. Okay. Nonprofit. So okay. they have they have a place where they can, um, you know, work work together as a community to to develop a comfort as hunters, knowledge as, as as hunters, but also do it in a place where, honestly, if they were they were just mixed in with the uh the larger population on public land they probably wouldn't be out there it'd probably be too unco- uncomfortable an experience and might not be a safe experience for them if we want to increase if we want to increase dei and that's a that is a rationale that's used by the hunting nonprofits for r3 the big barrier is not a lack of how to content or mentorship that, that I I just don't buy the whole mentorship and how to content thing. I never, I read like one hunting book in my whole life. My dad told me how to put up a tree stand, gave me a little tutorial on shooting a shotgun and a bow. And I was off. What we need to do if we want to increase DEI is work on access. If you superimpose a map of where the Hispanic population is in this country or where the black population is in this country over a a map that shows percent least land, the maps, (laughs) they, they are very, they share a lot of resemblances. Hispanics, California, and Texas, it's all leased out. And then blacks are in the southeast where it's all leased out. So I applaud you for that because if you if we want to increase DEI, it is a matter of providing them access, especially when you consider the pay gap. Who's going to, if it's all pay to play, who's going to end up with it? White dudes, which way are the people that make the most money? Not justifiably, but that's the way it is. You know, Matt, I, I, 
I understand where you're coming from on, you know, on hunter crowding and lack of access. And I, I know I agree with you. That's a problem. But I, I think I, well, like I say, I think it's the problem that well, inability to draw tags and leasing crowding and inability to draw tags. I think an equal threat to the tradition of hunting is um, diminished political clout of, of hunters. And I think an important way to get at that problem, to address that problem, is to allow people who typically haven't hunted in the U.S. to have access to hunting. And people of color are, are, have not been, you know, um, represented well among hunters. And part of that is because they live inordinately in urban areas where there is less access to hunting. And I think not just to hunting, but to the outdoors in general, you know, I think if a kid doesn't have a chance to get his or her feet wet in a creek at some point, he or she's probably not going to turn into an angler or a hunter. And I think we have to provide those kinds of experiences for people in urban areas. And it's really hard. I mean, it's expensive and it's hard to find those places to provide those experiences. But I think just lack of access to nature in general is a problem. I, I agree. I agree. I, I just think that the f- emphasis is misplaced. It's the emphasis is on recruitment and how to and mentorship, which is just not the bottleneck. The bottleneck is having places to go. They're I don't disagree. at all worth going to, especially if you're near an urban center. You know, right. That's a very difficult challenge. Yeah. Yeah. My personal experience is a little different, though. I I was not, I did not grow up hunting. I grew up outside New York City and moved to Nebraska, well, about 23 years ago, middle age, and worked for the Game and Parks Commission. And it wasn't until I was kind of surrounded by a bunch of folks who were predators (laughs) that I really sort of came to hunting and there, you know, it was, I didn't have a formal mentor, but being around people who could teach me things or give me advice was so important to uh, getting into this, getting into hunting and getting, getting good enough at it that, you know, you were successful, not just walking around with a gun. And so I, I think there's a certain level of helping people along, especially when they're later uh, later in life and didn't have that experience as a kid or didn't have family members who could impart that to them. So I, I do think there's a role for mentoring, but I totally agree that it's it's access is a huge part of it too. Yeah, I, I probably overse- oversell the point because I'm just so frustrated that, at, that the hunting nonprofits and all the hunting celebrities, they get to act like all virtuous because they're doing all, look at all of the mentorship we're providing. Look at all the how-to content we're generating. And a lot of that they're making money off. Almost all of it they're making money off of it. But that's, I just, and then, and then they do hand-waving about access, which is usually, somebody else 
does something, the government or something, and then they chip in a little bit to kick it over the finish line and take a bunch of credit for it. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, you can watch all the training videos you want and get kitted out and everything else, but if, if you can't get out to a place and actually be successful, then you're not going to keep doing it. I would rather have a 1982 compound bow with pulleys as big around as a pop can, some big old aluminum arrows with the fletching hat hanging off, and some delta broadheads, and have a place where there's not a guy behind every tree and a few and and the elk are acting like elk, you know, than be out there with my Matthews bow and my carbon fiber arrows and all the high tech crap with the rangefinder. And, and the elk bug-eyed and people everywhere, you know. So, <laughs> hallelujah. So the the emphasis has got to be on access, and the hunting nonprofits are not helping us there, and the hunting industry is terrible for it. <laughs> they're they're well, terrible what, for it. What what we do is really, really excruciatingly expensive. Yeah, yeah, that's a re that, and I'm sure that's the reason why it's it's but it's but just so to, expensive to get the access. It's the I want to defend. Some, I want to defend some of our partner NGOs. Um, I would just call it Ducks Unlimited, for example. Ducks Unlimited in Kansas, and I know in Mississippi, probably even more than here, um, has been a partner in in land acquisitions where we've acquired land and transferred land to the, to the state department of wildlife that becomes open for hunting and DU and other NGOs, pheasants have put their money where their mouth is. Um, it's the nature conservancy is just really big and we invest a lot of money, not only in, in land protection, fetal land protection, but in habitat and uh, in, in habitat protection and improvement. But, you know, it's just it's just really really expensive to buy a piece of land now. Even in places like Kansas, it's expensive. Yeah, well, that's because of hunting promotion. <laughs> if it wasn't Partly. for ducks on, if it wasn't for for Duck Dynasty, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but and, and just that's another thing that ticks me off. The hunting nonprofits are in bed with the celebrities in the industry. Like, how are the how is the, how is the the hunting celebrities, how are they beneficial to the hunting community? All they've done is jack up the price of access and jack up the land values. So now every like a, a handful of people that have gotten enticed to the hunting sphere and have a bunch of money can have a ton of land all of themselves while everybody else is squashed onto some 50-acre wildlife management area somewhere. But somehow they're like in bed together, like the celebrities. The celebrities have not helped my hunting. Period. You know, they've been negative. I don't see how you can make the case that they're positive how about, for how access. About, how about this for a theory that that the uh, the expectations are driven so high for people who are beginning hunting that they and at the same time, life has gotten so busy, people don't have as much time to invest in hobbies like hunting that the only way they can get fulfillment is actually paying top dollar to have, have that access. Yeah. Well then another thing I always say is I think that th that's right, but hunters need to look out for other hunters. If you're going to lease or buy some land, then I think 
it's not like I'm trying to pass laws, but shouldn't the hunting community, the nonprofits have um, like a campaign, like share the land, you know, that like encourage people to that own land and lease land to look out for other people. Yeah. But that's just absent. I mean, to me, that's more important than definitely more important than recruitment. Instead of recruitment, why not do share the land? Retention. Keep well, yeah, that's another yeah. thing I always say is that yeah. there really is no such thing as R3 because the three R's are internally inconsistent. If you're if you're a recruitment person, then you're not you're, you're an anti-retention person. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you know, we were we were talking about the conservancy's role and how expensive things are, and you know, the conservancy we're, we're not a hunting organization, though we're very friendly to hunters. Yeah, I never would have thought I could, we could. Have, I would have suspect I could, it could have been that you guys don't even hunt. No, it just no. turns out y'all do. You know, we 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 are a we are a global premier habitat organization. Yeah, on the broad spectrum of habitat, from everything from climate change to protecting the creek in somebody's backyard and restoring it, we're a habitat organization that is friendly to hunting. Because Let me ask you. Th- I just, I just had a great way of asking something. I think will help get to what I need, where I need to get. Which is, I'm trying to give the sportsmen an idea of whether or not they should take their money out of BHA and Ducks Unlimited and give it to you guys instead. So, would it be fair to say, look at if if they are interested in public access, look at the the local chapter of Nature Conservancy, where you live. And if they're leasing out the land, then give your money to something else, Hunters for Access. But if you're in an area where they're not leasing out the hunting land, then you could consider giving it to Nature Conservancy. Would that be fair advice? You want to respond to that, Mace? Yes, please, Rob. <laughs> I asked if you did. I, I know, Matt. I, I mean, if you're a hunter that's concerned about public yeah. access, you certainly don't want to give money to the Nature Conservancy in an area where they're leasing out yeah. the hunting land. Here's why that right. Here's why that rule might not be so great. Because again, you know, I, I led the program in Nebraska for 15 years. We had places that were first come, first serve for hunting. We had places that. Uh, you know, some acres that we leased. So, you know, it can really vary on the property and your needs at, at that particular property and how you can manage it most efficiently. I, I would echo Rob's point. I mean, if you care about not just what we do in our lands, but what happens to hunter access in that state, what happens to habitat management in that state, and give us a look because we really are, you know, the bottom line is, we own more land than any other organization, but it still isn't enough. We're not mm-hmm. going to we're not going to conserve nature and for and hunting for future generations if we don't think about the whole landscape. We're a whole landscape organization. We really look at that whole 
well, that whole picture and say, how can we bring everybody along and make sure we're all working together? And so if, if that's what you're into, I would say we're your organization because we want to make sure it's not just on our land, but everybody's land that we have abundant wildlife. And that's going to that's going to help hunter access ultimately. And, and I'd say that that's a great sell for the vast majority of people. Maybe not the guy that's making 30 grand a year and lives next to a property that you guys lease out for hunting. But for most people, that would be a very good sell. I would agree. Yeah, Matt, I would, I would offer this only in somewhat jest. I'd tell the, your, your constituent, just dig a little deeper and support Ducks Unlimited and the Nature Conservancy. The Ducks, Unli- Ducks Unlimited are like, how can you, how could anybody give money to them? I don't understand a hunter that's concerned about a quality experience. Manitoba now, like we just said, you can't go there anymore. And they're and DU's DU's solution, we need more hunters. They the chair of their R3 group lives in the next town over three. I and you can try to get her on the on the podcast. It's so tone deaf that it's hard. It, it's and the only conclusion is the only logical conclusion is that. They have to do that because they're the puppet to the hunting industry. And then when I was involved in BHA, I heard things like our corporate sponsors would not be very pleased with us if we gave up on our three. So I just don't get it. People in there's people in the Eastern States that are leasing out timber holes for $5,000 a year. And People who haven't go used to go to Canada to get some opportunity. Now you can't even do that. And the Ducks Unlimited is like, yep, need more hunters. It's just hard to take these outfits seriously. Yeah, I would just I would just offer as a as a no, wait, okay. No, I I but I, tell me where I'm wrong on that. Do you think it's from the why do you think they're still fixated on trying to bring more people in? Is because, it out of some compassion they have, or people? No, more people need. You're not a fully fledged person unless you hunt. I can't. Speak it's for profit D. motivated. I can't speak for DU, but um, but I can speak. I think for wildlife professionals in general, and they see the decline in hunters as a threat, not just fiscally to the to their organizations, but to to the to the legal, legislative, and social support for hunting. Well, yeah, that's the only one percent of people belong to a hunting nonprofit in this country. Right. Why not engage the existing hunting community? And, and and I would also argue if the quality is crap and the access is crap, you're not going to have an invigorated hunting community. I totally that fights for their fights for their every access and conservation and habitat and our right to hunt. They I need totally quality agree. hunting. Yeah. The the only other thing I would say is that. You know, you, you mentioned DU in specific. They do, in partnership with TNC, they do a ton of really good habitat work and in partnership with TNC, a ton of land acquisition work that does result in public access, additional public access. I can, I can point to you to specific projects. Yeah, I would much rather give the money to you guys because it's all of that. Without well, thank the, you. We'll take it. With, <laughs> without, the, without the R3. I mean, I'm a little bummed about the leasing part, but. Or or give it to my organization, the one I'm. We don't do our. That's all access. It all goes to access. Not trying to increase the number of hunters. Trying to increase the number of acres. Right. 
You know, I just, I don't get, it's comical to me. It's just, it's absolutely comical given the, the crowding, even, even it, well, I'd say this so many times as people are going to get so sick of hearing this, but even the survey data that's generated by the R3 community, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, their, sur- their own survey data that's, they're, 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 that's, they're, it's surveys they're conducting to overcome barriers to hunter recruitment. The surveys say the barrier is lack of access and crowding. Right. Lack of access. Well, no, no, no. I shouldn't have said that. Crowding. The biggest barrier to getting more people into hunting is that it's too crowded. 82% of people say that that's the dominant factor uh, dictating where they hunt. This is according to their practitioner's guide at National Shooting Sports Foundation. And 55% say they've abandoned hunting locations in the last five years due to crowding. Yeah. That's but we I'm need right. more hunters. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. Like I say, I'm a simple person. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, Matt, I'm going to need to check out soon. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm just, I'm just going back to my old brands now. Man, so, I really enjoyed visiting with you. Really enjoyed it. And, and, and I with you fellas, and I, 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 I am so glad that you're out there doing what you're doing. It's absolutely vital, and I think that my little listenership now has a better understanding of what you do, so that they can. They can direct their expenditures in a more informed way. So I feel like we've done our job here tonight. And thanks for having us, man. Yeah, Thank yeah thanks, Matt. It's been yeah. really interesting. Good conversation. All right. You guys have a good night. Take care. Good night. Great. You well.